This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. Welcome to this edition of Side Alpha Podcast. Uh, we are joined today with a special guest. So I want to tee up before we introduce the guest. I want to just tee up the scenario for a minute. Uh, this was a Saturday, May 23rd at 4.15 in the morning. The Fisherman Wharf had provided uh, pretty significant challenges for the San Francisco Fire Department. Uh, we know that from the press reports that a worker in the building reported seeing a lot of smoke, and a few minutes later, the quote was, there was fire everywhere. Uh, certainly, the stunning pictures and video have been seen around the globe, and um, you know, I know there's a lot of history and sentimentality to the wharf area, uh, but there's also a lot of danger in those kind of fires. So I'm very pleased to uh, have with us today the Homeland Security Operations and Public Information Officer for the San Francisco Fire Department, Lieutenant John Baxter. L- Lieutenant, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I uh, appreciate that uh, you have good weather there today, but uh, about a week ago uh, from when we're doing this recording, about a week ago, uh, 4.15 in the morning, you all were faced with a pretty significant uh, fire there. Before we dive into that fire, though, uh, Lieutenant, uh, you've been with the San Francisco Fire Department since the year 2000. Uh, could you give our listeners a little bit of a flavor for the San Francisco area in general and the San Francisco Fire Department in specific? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I did lateral over uh, from, from the city of Hayward Fire Department to the city of San Francisco uh, in January of 2000. And San Francisco Fire is a uniquely progressive and aggressive fire department, rich in tradition. Uh, and we pride ourselves on our redundancy programs and learning and moving forward from past disasters Um, most notably 1906, and we'll talk later on about how some of the uh, tools that were implemented in the city from the 1906 earthquake were actually used during this incident on Saturday at the Fourth Alarm Fire. This had to be a public information challenge. I'd like you to help us understand the early stages of this, the notifications, 911 call volumes, if you have them. Um, How did this call come in and what were the initial reports that you received from those first arriving units? So we'll start from the basics, the 911 calls. So our 911 center started to receive phone calls roughly around 414 in the morning for um, smoke and flames seen in the area of Pier 39, which is a tourist attraction as well as a commercial fishery location in San Francisco. Um, At 4.15, our units were uh, dispatched and shortly thereafter arrived on scene uh, of this incident, being our first companies uh, of an engine company reporting heavy smoke and fire to the rear of uh, Pier 45. Uh, The notifications that we get for for my position as the public information officer is um, a, a page out and we usually get that at the beginning of a first alarm fire and the page out text read large warehouse smoke and flames seen from the rear um, and usually we'll we'll turn on the radio listen to the radio traffic and um, start to to work on public information to go out to our media partners as well as the community 
Um, in this case, just looking at the text, uh, it was like, you know what, this is, uh, this is going to progress, have that gut filling. And by the time I was in my vehicle uh, responding out, it was already upgraded to a second alarm fire. Um, that's the severity that we had at the beginning stages. And we're talking minutes here from 4.15 to, I believe it was 4.21 is when we went from a first alarm to a second alarm on this incident. Uh, yep. So the uh, quick response, it sounds like, and we had pretty good information uh, from the get-go. I, I take it, I mean, it's a little early in the morning, but I take it uh, the system was being flooded with 911 calls during that period of time? That is correct. And we're, we're fortunate to have a, a dedicated and separate 911 um, communication center uh, where we have fire department uh, staff that's dedicated uh, to working within that facility as well. And the call takers were getting inundated with phone calls even at four o'clock in the morning from workers that were on the port um, at the Pier 45 area, which is a large area again, um, as well as individuals that were seeing the smoke and the flame from across the bay. I think the, the most accurate uh, confirmed phone call I have is roughly about four miles away. Uh, from the Marin County area where somebody saw the glow of the flames and actually thought that the uh, the uh, marina was back on fire. Uh, if that gives you a good visual picture of what we were uh, uh, confronted with. Sure, and, and some of those, uh, like I said in the beginning, some of those pictures really are stunning. And uh, the amount, the, the volume of fire um, and, and the backdrop of that entire event was uh, just, just pretty phenomenal. So, They've gotten there. Uh, they reported smoke and fire showing. Can you talk about some of the initial challenges they had and what steps they took to address those challenges? And, you know, we're talking uh, everything from water supply, decisions on defensive or offensive operations and uh, protective systems or protective postures, all those kinds of things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So the, the first 10 companies um, gave a really good size up. They positioned themselves on the western side of Pier 45 Shed C, which Shed C um, uh, progresses out into the bay and is also is lateral to Shed D as in David. And it also abates up to um, in front of or to the rear of shed a now each one of these are called sheds by the port association but for for the layperson these are large warehouses uh, the equivalent to the size of a football field um, the the spacing or distancing between these um, areas is roughly the size of two tiller ladder trucks for <laughs> for um, better terms and the flame lengths that we were seeing as we progressed to a second alarm fire were the equivalent to over 100 to 150 feet. There was a mild wind. However, this fire was so aggressive that it was producing its own um, uh, atmosphere where the flame links were progressing to or near the uh, rooftops of Pier Diaz and David as well as going over the entire vessel, the Jeremiah O'Brien. When the 1st Battalion Chief arrived on scene, um, they did a quick size up. 
We had our first in rescue companies start from the north, I'm sorry, the south side of the building to start doing an interior search for potential victims. This was a quick interior offensive move and they were quickly um, pushed out by the heat and the flames and we went to an immediate defensive operation at that time. Uh, the priorities, again, the first priorities are going to be life safety. Is this building occupied? We had intel from uh, adjoining companies that this building is not occupied in the evening hours or early morning hours. However, homeless have been known to uh, enter these warehouses and sleep in these warehouses. So again, unconfirmed reports of possible homeless in the building. Uh, confirmed reports from uh, vetted sources that the business is closed at that hour uh, helped us move to a complete defensive operation in addition to the rapidly evolving uh, fire which is now at this point a third alarm fire uh, within this building. The next piece of this though that I wanted to go to was the complexities of operating in that uh, wharf and, and pier area. Uh, so can you talk about the, from a dangerous perspective, the, where the waterway meets uh, the land and what your uh, water resources versus land resources at that point, how are we doing with that mix? And just talk a little bit about the dangers of operating that close to the water. So the, the piers in that area are, are established back in the early 1900s and they're evaluated with safety checks by our, our uh, partners at the Port Authority on a constant basis. And we actually drill uh, and train in those areas with all of our apparatus on a weekly basis. So apparatus placement, scene site safety and security is something that we pre-established through our drills and trainings in the past, which really helped um, form our aggressive defensive attack uh, and minimize us having to consider where our placement of apparatus would be. Now, apparatus placement, although uh, we can always, um, you know, second guess this at later times, the first truck company, which was truck number 13, did a phenomenal job uh, noting that the flame lengths and uh, the heat from this fire was potentially going to catch Shed D on, on fire, which was lateral to it or west of this building. Had that shed, that, and I continue to call it a shed, that's the appropriate term for the Port Authority, but again, it's a warehouse. Had that caught on fire, uh, we would have more, most likely seen a conflagration throughout the Marina District. They placed their ladder truck with a ladder pipe operation about 50% into the fire building for Shed C and extended that. They also deployed ground monitors at the front of their truck and the rear of their truck. And uh, single-handedly for the first alarm assignment portion, we're able to put up a curtain of water as well as water on the seat of the fire, which really helped hold back those flame links until we started to see the second, third, and fourth alarm companies come in and position themselves to have a good um, 
you know, line of defense against the spreading and containing it to the fire building itself. That truck did suffer some uh, damage from heat, um, some uh, paint um, uh, bubbling, as well as uh, some uh, minor burns uh, to some of the material that was on the outside of it. But again, the crews did a phenomenal job uh, uh, dedicating a safety line to the apparatus while it was there. And the IC was able to pull that ladder truck out during the fourth alarm period as it was replaced with another ladder truck uh, for safety reasons. Um, some other items that occurred were right around the end of the second alarm where we started to see some structural collapse or wall collapses. So we had some emergency traffic that went out. We did not have any maydays. Uh, when we did start to see some of these walls, which again, these are uh, warehouse style cement and steel and heavy timber um, uh, structures that were built in the 1920s started to collapse inward. Um, with these collapsing inward, we, we had to reevaluate the placement of our apparatus. Uh, we determined that our apparatus with ladder pipe operations were sufficient, and we did move a couple of our uh, engine companies that had ground monitors uh, a few feet back just to be a little bit more safe uh, with that, that um, process. And I'll stop there if you have any questions. Yeah. So did you have, at this point in the game, um, did you have any fireboat or water resources deployed on the fire? Yeah, so at the at the end of the first alarm going into the second alarm, Fireboat 3 uh, arrived on scene, which is our newer fireboat, uh, the St. Francis. The San Francisco Fire Department has one fully staffed 24-7 fireboat, and that is Fireboat 3. And that is staffed with uh, an engine company, which is Engine 35, of uh, three firefighters and an officer, and a boat company which uh, comprises of a boat pilot, commonly referred to as a captain, a boat engineer, and a boat officer, which would either be a lieutenant or a captain uh, in the San Francisco Fire Department. Uh, as that boat was approaching, uh, our operations chief, Victor Wersch, had arrived on scene, and we're talking about uh, 4.38, 4.40 in the morning now and uh, did a face-to-face -face with our division chief that was the IC for this incident and uh, placed himself as the division to protect the Jeremiah O'Brien. Uh, that, that division was a, a separate uh, operation and their sole mission was to save the Jeremiah O'Brien. So through Ch uh, Operation Chief Victor Wersch uh, placed himself on the pier, was able to confirm that we did have three crew members on the Jeremiah O'Brien that safely made it off, was able to do a face-to-face -face with the captain of the Jeremiah O'Brien and confirmed where the fuel tanks were, if there was any onboard hazards, and if there was any other hazards or any opportunity to release the, the Jeremiah O'Brien and move it away from the pier. That was not going to be an option due to the heat and the flames that were present um, in holding uh, everybody back, including uh, our operations chief. Uh, the fireboat at that time was directed by the operations chief on where to direct multiple master streams, utilizing the unlimited water supply of the bay to basically deluge the areas of concern, as well as place a, a curtain of water protecting uh, this vessel. 
um, what was uh, almost unbelievable to witness, and unfortunately, I was not able to get a good picture uh, visually of this just due to the smoke and, and the, the heat that was there, was to observe the water stream early on of the fireboat um, holding back the flames that when you would project the actual stream to a different location to cool off a different section, the flames from this fire would lap over the highest point of the Jeremiah O'Brien, which is, uh, and I'm going to guess this, about 150 to 200 feet up in the air. Um, and when the water stream was redirected, you can see how it actually would hold the flame lengths back. And that's why our operations chief, including myself, have been stating in the media that had it not been for fireboat number three, we would have lost the Jeremiah O'Brien. That was backed up after the fire was held to a containment, and we were able to get on board the Jeremiah O'Brien. And you can see onboard fuel tanks that were melted in areas. And had those uh, gone off, we would have, again, probably lost uh, one of only two Liberty ships that are still actually functioning uh, in the world. Yeah, for our listeners that uh, uh, may not be aware, the we've been talking a little bit about the SS uh, Jeremiah O'Brien. It is a uh, World War II era ship that's docked there in uh, San Francisco. Um, it was... Uh, named after the American Revolutionary uh, Warship Captain Jeremiah O'Brien. Uh, that is a phenomenal story, talking about the um, San Francisco Fire Department uh, Boat 3, uh, Fireboat 3, protecting uh, the SS Jeremiah O'Brien. So a fantastic, fantastic piece of history protected there. Uh, by the fire department and really shows the difference that, uh, in this case, the uh, difference that the fireboat was able to make. Can you talk about uh, any uh, unique hazards beyond the water? I mean, I, th I think that's kind of obvious, but any unique hazards of the, the wharf area that were present and how did you, uh, how did the department address those? So, uh, you know, again, the, the challenges and hazards that we have out there are going to be a wa water supply and um, apparatus placement. And those, those challenges is, and hazards are items that on a weekly basis companies would address through company drills or battalion drills um, throughout that, that area. And those drills included members of the Port Authority and even members of the commercial buildings themselves. We include uh, in our in our drills to help us figure out how we can better address and respond to emergencies. Uh, people who work out there 24-7, they have a better knowledge of uh, is, is there a weak spot of, of the pier? Is there an area that you know is, is more hazardous? Do you have chemicals? Do you have, um, you know, combustible materials? And if it had not been, again, and I know that I mentioned this earlier, it had not been for the fact that we pre-planned and trained and drilled out there, I, I firmly believe we would have been behind the ball on determining rig placements and attack strategies on, on this fire. One of the biggest hazards um, that we did or challenges would be a better, uh, more appropriate term would be water supply. 
We have multiple low pressure municipal water hydrants throughout the pier. Um, some of these extending out uh, onto the land will be on different grid systems that will allow us to have more pressure. However, for a fire of this magnitude, the municipal water source, even off separate grids, is not going to be enough. So earlier I mentioned, you know, how we're, we pride ourselves on our redundancy programs and how we learn from disasters. And one of the items that came from the 1906 earthquake and was expanded upon after the 1989 earthquake is our auxiliary water supply system. And our auxiliary water supply system comprises of three separate uh, water sources that are only for fighting fires in San Francisco. Those are attached to high pressure hydrants and a high pressure hydrant re requires a reducing valve to be placed onto the actual hydrant itself because of the 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 pressure that comes out of out of there. We're looking at pressures in the upwards of 1500 to 2000 pounds to, to dependent on the uh, location of that actual hydrant. Um, these hydrants are actually uh, mitigated with pressure issues by pump operators who go to pump houses that again are dedicated solely to fighting the fire within these these uh, water systems um, and we can actually say increase the pressure or decrease the pressure in this circumstance we used what's called an above ground water system which is five inch hose that are carried on hose tenders throughout the city and we laid almost a half mile of hose of large diameter hose to uh, different high pressure hydrants to facilitate an adequate water supply to our ladder pipe operations and our ground monitor operations. Um, now there's hazards that go along with that is how many streets are we going to close down? How are we going to block it? How are we going to make sure that nobody drives over um, the, the hose. What happens if one of those hose bursts? We can't stop the operations. We have to make sure we continue. So we actually branched off these sources so that we had a secondary source on standby had we needed to shut down some of these hose lines or if we had a rupture so that we could continue our actual operations with that. Um, the other, the other um, hazard or challenge is when I said earlier how these piers extend out onto the water and we can't get between these two areas to um, securely the secure the actual defensible space between shed C and shed D. That's where fire rescue boat number one came in to play. Now fire rescue boat one is a small rescue boat that we have that has firefighting capabilities but is primarily utilized for rescue operations and we just recently acquired that vessel uh, within the last year. Uh, it it uh, showed its worth on Saturday morning as it positions itself uh, in between Shed C and Shed D on the water and was able to utilize, again, the unlimited supply of water from the bay and placed up a blanket of water uh, on the west side of this shed while Fireboat 3, again, was continuing to save the Jeremiah O'Brien. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty intense stuff. So, uh, Lieutenant, looks like you had over 150 firefighters. You had four alarms plus and about 50 pieces of fire apparatus on this incident. 
yet only one injury, and it looks like one piece of apparatus damaged. Uh, that, to me, is a pretty successful four-alarm response if I've ever heard one. Can you update us on the, the firefighter and the fire truck, a little bit more about uh, the firefighter's injuries, if you can, and uh, where they stand with that, and then also on the fire truck? Yeah, so the fire truck company number 13, um, that, that was a calculated risk. Um, the, the officer for truck 13, uh, again, pulling into uh, their operation period, realized where they needed to place the apparatus. Um, they were hopeful that we they would be able to get a hold on this fire, again, as this was a, a first alarm fire. Um, and as it rapidly progressed, um, within minutes to greater alarms, uh, the operator and the uh, the officer for truck number 13 realized that this is this is going to be um, <laughs> a position that we need to hold to ensure that it doesn't lap over onto um, warehouse D. Now, usually during these operations, we will place a firefighter up on top of the tip of our ladder. Um, truck to uh, manage the ladder pipe operation. Um, in this circumstance, obviously, due to the heat and the flame lengths, we did not with truck 13. Again, another great call by the officer, and they went to using um, lanyards to help direct the flow of the water pipe uh, within this fire system that we that they were uh, confronted with. Um, again, I, I, I can't say enough, the, the operation and placement of the first-in companies were amazing. And what's a good point that I probably need to, to hit on is in San Francisco, uh, we do follow the ICS system. It's employed in all of our fires. However, what's unique about San Francisco is each one of our apparatus has the equivalent of a playbook when you re when you respond and arrive on a fire. So the first in engine company knows what their task is. The second in engine company knows that their task is to supply. The third in engine company knows that their task is to uh, supplement the supply with a secondary source and re report to the IC. The first truck knows that their first priority is life safety. The second truck knows that their first priority is ventilation the rescue company, you know, and so on and so on. So when we're talking about the placement of these apparatus, again, having this predetermined knowledge of what their what their function is really helped get us in position quickly to minimize the um, potential for exposures to ignite and to actually lead to what we believe would have been a conflagration um, of this entire pier. The injury we're talking about is one of our um, uh, battalion chiefs, a very um, uh, well-respected, well-educated, very safety conscientious uh, battalion chief. And uh, in the performance of attempting to secure uh, an area that was next to Shed A, uh, that battalion chief did injure his hand with a severe laceration. And uh, due to HIPAA regulations, we won't give his name out here, but we basically had to drag him off the site because he needed stitches and he wanted to stay with his crew and actually wouldn't leave until he knew that another battalion chief had taken over his position. So another true form of, of accolades to the dedication of the San Francisco Fire um, upper management when we're looking at these incidences. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with that one injury, it sounds like just some stitches. He was probably treated and released from the hospital that day. That's correct. Yeah. This uh, certainly had to uh, garner international media attention. And 
in your role as the public information officer, um, can you talk about that effort of uh, the challenges of dealing with both the media and public community messaging efforts that you needed for this incident? Yeah, and if and if you're okay with it, I'll give you a little bit of background about our, our PIO position. So in uh, in late 2015, just prior to Super Bowl 50, um, I was uh, asked by the the former chief of the department, Joanne Hayes White, to take on the position of public information officer for the San Francisco Fire Department. Prior to that, we had uh, one individual that was um, wearing about six hats, and one of those hats was the public information officer, and we needed to um, have a dedicated position, especially as we were moving towards uh, Super Bowl 50. So I had the opportunity to um, evaluate the the program and to form our current program that we employ as a public information office. Um, I currently still am the only public information officer for the San Francisco Fire Department, which means that I have to rely heavily on pre-established relationships and partnerships with other agencies for assisting on large-scale incidences such as this. So, Having the pre-established relationships, having drills with other agencies really um, proved to be successful during the the fourth alarm fire, which I will get to here in a moment. So as I arrived on scene, again, placement of, of where I can put a media staging area and placement where I can have my position to actually confer with the IC, confer with my operations chief, my chief of department, and have a good perspective uh, of the incident in totality to, number one, get the right information to the right people at the right time. You know, is there safety hazards? Are there evacuations? Are there shelter in places? Are there environmental issues such as smoke or debris in the water that we have to address? Um, We we, as a public information officer entity, can't see that if we're away from the incident, um, and we need to see that because we have to have that information to push out. So one of the first tasks I did is I did a face-to-face with the police department's uh, commander, which was a sergeant. Um, I'll let the sergeant know, to let all his officers know that no media vans are allowed into this this perimeter. They have to be outside the perimeter because we, we're going to progress and we need to have ingress and egress for all of our fire apparatuses and ambulances if we had to utilize them for the incident. Second was an established media staging point. And uh, we actually did the first media staging point at Taylor and Jefferson under the iconic Fisherman Wharf sign. Uh, which is a good point for media uh, representatives to be able to come to, so it's not confusing. Uh, we were able to play. I was able to place a, a paramedic from one of our uh, standby paramedic ambulances as a, uh, a basically I gave him a field promotion to public information officer assistant at that point. Gave him a vest. And his task was to make sure that the media stayed in that location and to let them know that although we understand they have the right to go into the scene to capture video, we would like them to stay at this location and we will provide them with timely updates at that location due to the hazard. Uh, That worked well beyond what I thought it would as we had no media um, going uh, into the actual fire zone Uh, and uh, filming things, which causes an issue for us because we now have to be concerned about their safety 
uh, while they're doing that as well. E- even though we give them the disclaimer, we know you can go in there, it's dangerous, and we're not going to protect you. Our protection duties are, are lying with the fire. We're still going to protect them. So luckily, that worked out um, great. And for those not from California, in California and abroad, um, the media has the right to go past um, a fire disaster line unless it's declared a crime scene. And at this time, it had not been declared a crime scene. So moving forward from that was how are we going to get information out um, to the public? And in this circumstance, we utilized a, a application called Citizens App. And Citizens App allows me to geolocate the location automatically and give a live update, which then goes out to our other social outlets, uh, mostly Twitter, um, and retains the content for us to show a timeline of the actual event. More importantly, that application has a push notification that's pre-established by the, the company that will push out that information to followers who are subscribers or followers who have checked the incident to give them updates. We had per update that we gave on Citizens App, we had over 100,000 locals that were able to get immediate um, updates. And when I'm talking about an update, it's the equivalent to a um, emergency cell phone notification where they opt into this within the application and it will actually give them alert on their app on their cell phone to give them these updates. Why is that important? It's extremely important, number one, to keep people calm. We want them to know that we're there, that we're addressing the emergency, that the emergency is progressing, and that we're prepared to move with this incident as this incident progresses, which it which it did, as we can see from the, the fourth alarm footage that we've all been watching. Um, this really helped form an established communication uh, with not only our media partners who are now using that video and following um, that information, but it also kept a lot of misinformation from being pushed out by community members and misinformation is something that we anticipate happens but it's also something that we have to address if the misinformation is egregious um, and we saw none of that absolutely zero misinformation from community sources or media with with us doing that the second area was establishing when and how and who will be giving these updates and i needed help i was the only pio there um, and that's where the pre-established relationships with our Department of Emergency Management. We have a, a 24-7 duty officer for our emergency management team. It was a quick text message. Um, I need your PIO code 3 to uh, you know Taylor and Jefferson to assist with managing the uh, media staging location. And within seconds, uh, I was like, your PIO is en route. It's going to be Kristen Hogan with the Department of Emergency Management. Um, I know who she is. I've trained with her. I know she's she's competent. I have no worries. And when she gets here, uh, she's going to have a task, and I know she can complete those tasks. Um, all things that are an ease of mind to make sure that you can continue to address the issues that are that are going to arise, um, and that we will have to um, to get out to the public and get out to the media. So we're going to work towards uh, closing out on on this edition of the podcast, but. I do want to talk about uh, a couple takeaways that 
uh, I've, I've gotten out of this discussion uh, with uh, Lieutenant Baxter, that is, uh, number one, uh, the pre-planning operationally and the pre-planning that the San Francisco Fire Department has done uh, physically having units out there on the piers uh, weekly working through the uh, all the different scenarios and understanding uh, where they would place things, the things you would typically do in a, a pre-plan, a pre-fire plan uh, scenario, but on a much more robust nature than I think a lot of departments are used to. Uh, two then being the pre-planning of uh, pre-established agency relationships and having a public information plan that's ready to go and ready to roll out when uh, something big like this happens. Uh, I'm sure that there will be many other lessons learned that will come out of an after-action report. Um, I hope that uh, we could depend on the San Francisco Fire Department to share those uh, lessons learned with our listeners um, when that after-action report is complete. Absolutely. So, as as uh, you know, at this fire was placed contained on Saturday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. However, we do continue to have three areas of this pier that continue to um, to burn, um, whether they started off as hot spots and then flare-ups and continue to, to progressively um, come back <laughs> to, uh, to be defiant in our uh, attempts right. to extinguish them. Right. But we're, we're continuing to work with um, all safety um, personnel from the Port Authority uh, and our abilities to get those things completely extinguished. One of the items we did is we moved the Jeremiah O'Brien yesterday to Pier 35 North, which gives us that whole east side to, to place our water boats on closer. Um, to get some water into those areas. Uh, the other items is we're going to be looking at what type of um, uh, heavy machinery we can bring in that will be safe on the structure of the pier that's been burning for um, multiple days now. And that that in itself is a logistical safety issue that we have to look at. Is, can we bring a bulldozer in there? No. Well, can we bring a forklifter in there? Maybe. Can we bring in a lift that has a crane that we can move items around safely? Possibly. So when we get to those, those, those um, points where we can get items in there to move some of the um, heavy timber and the tons of material that has come down from this warehouse um, being a, a complete loss, uh, we'll be able to get those completely extinguished, which will then lead into our investigatory uh, phase. Yeah, so four or five days later, uh, we've still got fires burning out there. Um, certainly, your folks are around it. You have uh, people on it 24 hours a day, and uh, we uh, will be thinking about you all as you continue to put resources towards not only getting the fire finally extinguished, uh, but then ultimately working towards uh, a, a origin of cause uh, investigation into it. Uh, we're glad to hear that there was uh, only the one minor injury uh, and that uh, that person was released and only one fire truck damaged in this. Uh, it's a phenomenal uh, to be able to, to say that and it's a testament to the safety culture uh, within the department to walk away from that big of a fire with that little bit of uh, overall little bit of damage to your people and your apparatus. I thank you for joining us today, Lieutenant Baxter, and I want to uh, thank our listeners for joining us on this edition of the Side Alpha Podcast. Join us next time. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care. <laughs>